would you grab a Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 22? Revelation chapter 22. You can find that on page 1041 if you're using a pew Bible. Just by show of hands, how many of you have heard the phrase, New World Order? All right, put your hands down if you're thinking Hulk Hogan, right? (laughs) Now how many of you have heard it? All right, a little fewer. From time to time, political leaders have held out the promise of a New World Order. If you uh, reach in your pocket and pull out a dollar bill... On the left seal, you'll find the Latin Navus Ordo Seclorum, New Order for the Ages, was America. One century later, 620,000 people die in a civil war. Then later, after World War I, Woodrow Wilson also champions a new world order, this time under the League of Nations. World War I was the war to end all wars. That's what they said. Twenty years later, Hitler and Nazi Germany proposed their own new order. World War II kills 40 million more. And then there was January 1991, after the Cold War. George H.W. Bush advocates, again, a new world order. That includes the United Nations peacekeeping efforts. In March 2022, Joe Biden spoke to the Business Roundtable saying, there's going to be a new world order out there, and we've got to lead it. Man can promise a new world all he wants, but man will always fail to bring it about, at least in any way that's just and good and truly healing for all nations. History bears this out. Our own experience bears this out. We don't go beyond we don't have to go beyond the walls of our own home to find disorder. True renewal for the world comes only from outside of us. It comes by the gracious work of God and Jesus Christ. We've been reading about this in Revelation. John emphasizes this once again in chapter 22. Only the presence of God and Jesus will transform the world. Only the presence of God and Jesus will transform the world. Listen to God's word from verse 1 of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. 
They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Presence of God, a river flowing, the tree of life, a land without curse, people reigning, having dominion. We know these themes from the opening chapters of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, God entrusts man with dominion. In Genesis chapter 2, God prepares man a garden with a river and a tree of life. Man was to serve and enjoy an abundance of life in God's presence. But man, as the story goes, listens to the serpent. Instead of trusting God's word, man chooses his own path, and that path leads to death. The Lord curses the ground... God banishes man from his presence. He blocks man's access to the tree of life. Man's dominion is corrupted. And ever since that day, life outside the garden is full of sin and sorrow. It's full of suffering and death. It's full of thorns and thistles. But when we come to chapter 22 of Revelation, we find a different day that's reported. The Bible now closes with a new Eden in a new world. But this new world isn't like the empty promises of politicians. This new world is God's doing. He is able and He is trustworthy. And so it's true and it's coming because God's will, because of God's will to do it in the person of Jesus. Let's look at it more closely in two parts. We'll start with God's abundant life replacing the curse. God's abundant life replacing the curse. Now we spent some time on God's city last Sunday in chapter 21. Uh, New Jerusalem is the true holy of holies. God's presence fills the whole city. Uh, And now within that city, John's drawing closer and closer to the, the center Within that city, John now sees the river of the water of life. Now, we know from from nature itself that that water gives life. I mean, you take just in an airplane, if if you've ever looked down and seen the rivers and the the lush green outlining the, the banks of the rivers along the way, water gives life. And this becomes a fitting symbol for spiritual life also in Scripture. We read some Psalms earlier, but also God calls Himself the fountain of life. The fountain of living water in Jeremiah chapter 2. And likewise, this river signifies God's presence bringing life and animating everything in the new creation. But let's back up a little bit. The story begins in Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 to 14. Eden was God's initial dwelling place. And from Eden, Genesis chapter 2, verse 10 says, a river flowed to water the garden. And so right from the start of the Bible, we get a river flowing from God's presence to bring life for Eden and even beyond as it breaks into four other rivers. 
Of course, once Adam and Eve rebel, they don't experience this life any longer. The ground is cursed. And then the same happens with with Israel later on in the land of Canaan, which the land there is supposed to be like another garden, right? And he's putting his son, Israel, his, 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 his son, his new Adam, so to speak, in a new place, a new garden. And God is watering that land and making it plentiful. But then what happens? They rebel and God shuts off the waters And the land is barren. And so the point that we see both in the garden and in the land of Canaan is that sin cuts us off from the blessings of God's life. But how merciful when God comes to the people in their barrenness, in their wasteland, and He he talks to them through the prophets about new life in His presence. New life that's even symbolized by a new river. And so in Ezekiel 47, the Lord promises to return to His people. We talked about Ezekiel 47 a little bit last week as as Ezekiel is seeing this this glorious new temple. God's going to restore His presence to the people. He's going to restore the worship of the people. And then Ezekiel sees this vision of a river. A river in their midst. And at first, Ezekiel just sees a a little trickle that's that's coming out from the new temple. But the further out he goes, the river gets ankle deep. And then he goes out a bit further and it gets knee deep. And then it gets waist deep. And then, and then it's deep enough to swim in until finally he says no one can pass through it. And so he comes back to the river bank and and he looks out over where this river is going. And when he looks out over a land that was once cursed by God, suddenly he sees life everywhere. The river from God's presence transforms the desert into a lush garden. And then it flows down into the Dead Sea and it turns the Dead Sea fresh. And he sees many trees. Their leaves, he says, will not wither, nor their fruit fail. But they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary, from the presence of God. And their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. The imagery is beautiful. Beautiful work of God's grace. It pictures the day when life in God's presence reverses the curse and transforms the land into, into a paradise. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 8 also builds on the same imagery, only he takes it a, a little step further. On that day, he says, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. So it's not just the temple like Ezekiel sees, it's flowing out of the whole city. The whole city has become God's sanctuary. Joel chapter 3 verse 18 advances it even further. A fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Now Shittim means the acacias. 
And if you look elsewhere in, in the scriptures that associate these more desolate areas where the acacias grow, you will see that it associates it with the land of Moab. In other words, the waters will renew the nations, not just Israel. And so all of these threads that we, that we hear from the Old Testament, they're coming together in John's vision. He is seeing their ultimate fulfillment in New Jerusalem. God's presence brings life to everything in the city. He makes all things beautiful and whole again. But there's something else John sees that Ezekiel and Zechariah and Joel didn't get to see. The lamb on the throne. The river flows from the throne of God and of the lamb. So God and the lamb share the one single throne, making them both the one source of the river of life. But this also reminds us of another pattern in Scripture, that any access to the, presence of God, to the presence of God comes by the sacrifice of a lamb. That was true in the tabernacle. It was true in the temple. And it's true here. Only this lamb is no longer dead. He was once slaughtered, but he is now risen and he is enthroned above the angels to give life. Chapter 7, verse 17 pictures the lamb guiding his people to drink from springs of living water. So only through the lamb do we have any access to life in God's presence. And then adding to the picture, John sees the, the tree of life on either side of the river. Now that could mean that, that the tree's root systems you know, span the, the river. Uh, it could mean that the, the canopy of the tree stretches across the river to, to both sides. Some have said this might even be a collective noun, the, the one tree representing many But the point stays the same. We're seeing the total reversal of man's condition in New Jerusalem. In chapter uh, 2, verse 9 of Genesis, that's where we first see the tree of life in the garden. And not, not much is said about the tree there in Genesis. We can speculate. But Proverbs compares the tree of life to wisdom, chapter 3, verse 18. It compares it to the behavior of a righteous person, chapter 11, verse 30. He says the tree, uh, a satisfied desire is like the tree of life, Proverbs 13, 12. And he also compares it to a gentle tongue. Gentle tongue is like tree of life, Proverbs 15, 4. And so you get the impression that that whatever the trees make up, to eat from that tree shows this, this deep satisfaction with God's word and how those words order and bless our relationships. And had Adam found his satisfaction there, this would have been man's condition forever in God's eternal rest. Instead, Adam eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which was contrary to God's word. Basically, this was Adam and Eve's way of determining good from evil, 
without God and in place of God. And so God bans them from the tree of life. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, God drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So sin means we no longer have access to God's eternal life. And in Adam, that's all of our story. We're still outside the garden. But for those in New Jerusalem, when that city comes down, God opens the way to the tree of life again. And so we see from all sides the people take and eat. It bears 12 fruits according to each month. The point being that its bounty never ceases. It's, it's bearing fruit all year round. In the Lord's presence, we will always be satisfied. Also, like the trees that Ezekiel saw, the leaves of this tree bring healing. But whereas Ezekiel saw the trees bringing healing for Israel, this tree brings healing for the nations. And you could ask, well, in what sense are they healed? Are they healed physically? Is it just that their bodies are made well again? Are they healed spiritually? Are they healed relationally? So there's just not any more conflict? I think the answer is D, all the above. The life emanating from God's presence restores everything and everyone in every way. The first half of verse 3 makes the same point, but he states it negatively. No longer will there be anything accursed. Or all cursed things will be no more. That's another way to translate it. All cursed things will be no more, meaning cursed because of sin. Like when God cursed the ground in Genesis 3.17, and since then all creation groans in futility, Romans 8 says. Or when God curses the lawbreakers in Deuteronomy and and how those curses then play out in, in Israel's history. But for those in New Jerusalem, all curses are gone because sin is totally gone. There's no more thorns and thistles. There's no more exile. There's no more banishment. There's no more international conflict. Sin won't even be a possibility in New Jerusalem, which makes it better than Eden. Now you might say, wait, a minute ago you said the Lord banned Adam from the tree of life. And since Adam, nobody has had access to the tree Everyone stands cursed after Genesis chapter 3. And so how does anyone eat from the tree of life in Revelation 22? And to that, I would answer, we need to remember another tree. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law 
by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the nations. Jesus hung on a tree, the tree of Calvary, the bloody cross of Golgotha, and he hung there to take away your curse and to secure your access to the tree of life in the garden of God. That's the good news of the gospel. If you trust that Jesus did this for you, you will know God's abundant life in New Jerusalem. You will know what it means for God's abundant life to take away your curse and to fill your life with His blessings. Psalm 46 says that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God and you will drink from that river and eat from this tree of life because of the Lamb. And so place your faith there in Him. The other piece to this picture that we see here is God's kingdom of priests enjoying His presence. God's kingdom of priests enjoying His presence. Notice how verse 4 describes the people of New Jerusalem. It says that His name will be on their, on their foreheads. That reaches back to the priest's turban in, in Exodus. The, the priest wore a turban that said, Holy to the Lord, cross the forehead. That's how John sees the redeemed. They're a new priesthood. And then at the end of verse 5, he says, and they will reign forever and ever. Reigning is what kings do. If you were here back in January, we we had looked at Genesis chapter 1 and how God created us to rule Ruling creation rightly is one way that we image God. God is the true king, but he has made us to be lesser kings, to reflect his rule in that way on earth. But sin has corrupted our dominion. Here it's restored. Forever, in their state of glorification, God's people reign. And so we see this kingdom of priests before God. And once again, the Lamb has accomplished this. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 5 of Revelation. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Or Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, when they say, worthy is the Lamb, right? Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you did ransom for God men from every tribe and tongue, people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. See, Jesus makes us God's kingdom of priests, and because of his blood, we will get to enjoy God's presence. Notice where they are. It says that they are before the throne. Verse 3, the throne of God 
and the Lamb will be in it. This is the same throne that we saw in chapter 4 and 5. Wrapped in rainbow-like emerald beauty with jasper and carnelian decorating the royal majesty. Glory so brilliant, there's no need for lamp or sun, verse 5 says. But most significantly, verse 4 adds, and they will see his face. And they will see his face. At one point in the story, in Exodus, God says, no one can see my face and live. And yet here, they look on God's face. What does that include? Them looking upon God's face. Well, it includes a true knowledge of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so seeing God's face has to do with knowing Him truly as He is. It also includes blessing. Not to have God's face was like death. Psalm 143, verse 7. Hide not your face, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. But for God's face to shine upon you, for Him to lift the light of His countenance upon you, meant grace and peace and blessing and joy. Of course, one of the greatest blessings, one of the greatest joys, is the splendor of God's glory itself. You know, sometimes in Scripture, God would reveal aspects of His glory to the prophets. But it's, it's, it's always partial. You know, it's mediated through an angel. Or it's hidden by clouds of thick darkness. Or He tells Moses, you can only see my backside. And so on. But even what the prophets do see, even the glimpses of like the hem of God's garment in, in Isaiah 6, they are, they are searching all over for language to describe these scenes. The glory pushes well beyond what language can capture. You know, Ezekiel sees him. Such was the appearance of the lightness of the glory of God. He's throwing shiny metal and rainbows and all kinds of things, trying to figure, what, what am I looking at here? Thomas Boston once described what seeing God must be like, you know, when the finite saints try to behold what's infinite. Listen to his words. They may touch the mountain, but cannot grasp it in their arms. They cannot with one glance of their eye behold what grows on every side. But the divine perfections will be an unbounded field in which the glorified shall walk eternally, seeing more and more and more of God. 
since they can never come to the end of that which is infinite. They may bring their vessels to this ocean every moment and fill them with new waters. What a ravishing sight would it be to see all the perfections and lovely qualities that are scattered here and there among the creatures, all gathered into one. But even such a sight would be infinitely below this blissful sight the saints shall have in heaven. Knowledge, blessing, splendor. There's one more thing it means. You will see him unashamed. What happens when you've done wrong and you go to confess to another person? You have a hard time lifting up your face. It's even harder when your sin was against that person. Shame keeps you from lifting your face to meet their eyes. And how much more is the case with God, who is perfect and holy? At one point, Ezra cries, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. But what does it mean when in New Jerusalem you shall see his face? It means there's no longer any shame. God has taken away all of our shame in the person of Jesus. There's no more hiding. No more God. Where are you, Adam? You will look on God's face with unhindered openness because of the Lamb. I love God. I love His grace. What a great love He has shown us in the Lamb that we might be able to behold His face this way. That closes John's vision of the new Jerusalem. And the question is, what will we do with this vision? How should we respond to its message? First, I think this vision, when we, when we look at it, teaches us to worship God as Trinity. Worship God as Trinity. Trinity isn't a Bible word, but it describes how God reveals himself in the Bible, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Notice again how there's only one throne, but it's the one throne of God, the Father, and of the Lamb, God the Son. Also notice the end of verse 3. His servants will worship him in singular He just got through saying, throne of God and of the Lamb. His servants will worship Him. Are they worshiping God the Father or the Lamb? Yes. 
We saw the same worship in chapters 4 and 5. The Lamb receives the same worship that God the Father did in chapter 4. And He receives that worship without compromising true worship. Revelation is a book where if you worship anything but God, terrible judgments come upon you. And what that means is that when they worship the Lamb, and it does not compromise true worship, the Lamb is God. We haven't yet spoken of the Holy Spirit, but Jesus does compare the Holy Spirit to a river of living water in John chapter 7, verse 38. And so the new creation is a work of God as Trinity. True thoughts about God will always square with God as Trinity. And if they do not square with God as Trinity, then they are not true thoughts. Likewise with our worship. We should worship God as Trinity for the work that He has done. God the Father working through God the Son and the Spirit. God the Spirit, to bring about the new world. Second, this vision motivates our endurance in love. This vision motivates our endurance in love. You might be asking, where am I getting that? We haven't said anything about love today. Jesus gave this prophecy, meaning the whole prophecy in the form of a letter. And so we must ask, how is this vision functioning within the whole letter? Sure enough, the last place the tree of life gets mentioned is chapter 2, verse 7. If you want to go back there. Chapter 2 is... Jesus' message to the church in Ephesus. They were hardworking. They were morally resilient and doctrinally orthodox. But he says this in verse 4, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They had abandoned love which is a necessary virtue to the life of any true church. And so then Jesus calls them to repent, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. Do the works you did at first. What works? Well, the works of love is what he's talking about. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So that's kind of the negative incentive, the warning going to remove your lampstand if you don't repent. But here's the positive incentive in verse, uh, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the, ones who conquer, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And they might be thinking, Ooh, what's that about? And they got to wait to chapter 22 to get there. But still, he means it as a motive for them to continue enduring in love. 
Why would the tree of life come up as a motive for persevering in love? I think at least part of the reason is that the path of love is so costly and oftentimes very exhausting. Love might even lead you to lose your life for another's sake. We don't need to go, on, go beyond the cross of our Lord to, to learn that. Love requires great sacrifice. You might even get into situations where you have loved and loved and poured yourself out and you start questioning whether you want to continue in this. And what this is saying is that every sacrifice... Every ounce of energy you spend, every emotional strain, every relational tear you might experience because people want nothing to do with Jesus, it will be rewarded with an eternity of satisfaction in God's presence. God promises eternal refreshment for you beneath the tree of life. The Lamb will guide you to springs of living water. That'll keep you enduring in love. I'm going to drink from God's river of His delights. Also, draw near to the Lamb now for living water. You don't just have to wait. All right? Is the point here. To draw from that river. Draw near to the Lamb now for living water. Living waters will flow from the Lamb's presence in final Jerusalem. That doesn't mean you should neglect coming to Jesus now. In John chapter 4, why does Jesus offer the Samaritan woman at the well living water? Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will be thirsty again. We'll never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's the conversation he's having with the Samaritan woman who's going from one husband to the next. And the one she's living with now is not her husband. And then in John seven thirty-eight, why does Jesus say that Anyone who believes in him out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John says he was referring to the Holy Spirit. Why? What's going on here? Because the blessings, the blessings of the new age have broken into the present world through the person of Jesus. We don't have to wait until the end to begin experiencing this eternal life. We don't have to wait to the end to begin benefiting from the fountain of living water. He offers it now through the gift of the Holy Spirit. What is it that finally transforms the world in Revelation 21 and 22? It is the presence of God. God's presence has been the centerpiece of chapters 21 and 22. It's the whole point of the New Jerusalem. What happens when you trust in Jesus? 
What does he give you? The presence of God in the Holy Spirit. If he will remake the world this way, imagine what he can do to your life today. Don't wait for the end. Draw near to the Lamb now. Seek his face in prayer. Listen to his word. Walk with him day by day. Listen to this from Paul Tripp. He's addressing uh, regrets that spouses often experience in marriage. But I think once you hear it, you can apply it to a mul- in a multitude of directions. He says, perhaps the brightest, most wonderful commitment of the Redeemer is captured in these words from Revelation 21, verse 5. Behold, I am making all things new. New is the operative word for what God is seeking to do in you and in your marriage. You are not stuck. You are not committed to the mistakes of the past. You are not cursed to pay forever for your errors. God's work is in the work of renewal. He sent His Son to earth in order to make the real and lasting change possible. God has made fresh starts and new beginnings possible. Reconciliation can take place. Restoration really does happen. What was broken can be healed. The weeds of the old way can die and flowers of a new, better way can grow in their place. As we face regret, we bask in forgiveness and then turn to live in a new way, embracing the power that is ours as children of God. There's a lot of hope in that. If the Lamb can and will do all of this at the end for His people, if God's presence turns wastelands into paradise, think of what He can do right now in your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So if the new has begun in the presence of the Holy Spirit, then there's hope for change. There's hope for reconciliation. There's hope for forgiveness. There's hope for growth. There's hope for your sanctification and growth in Christ-likeness. And then further, let this vision shape the way you think about the pursuit of holiness and purity. You know, many of you were here when Ben was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, chapter 5 verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Hebrews 12, 14 Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Repeatedly, the apostles connect holiness or purity with seeing God and the reward of getting to see God. 
But what this vision helps us understand is that the pursuit of holiness is part of the much larger theme of enjoying God's presence. Holiness and purity are not bare commands. They are part of a much larger trajectory to restore us to God's presence in his paradise. Where we walk with God again. When he says, be holy for I am holy, he's offering you the new Eden and all that he is in it for you. So walk with him there. It's what you were made for originally, and it's where he's taking you in Christ. And so seek that purity now. Give yourself wholly to God's will now as it holds out the promise of enjoying God fully on the last day. And then finally, rest assured that God will bring a new world. Rest assured that God will bring a new world. Politicians and world leaders will continue making promises, many of which they cannot keep. Even promises more aligned with the truth will often not be executed properly, or resources will run out and lead to disappointment. But God's vision for the new world will not prove empty. He has all the resources, and He doesn't lie. So set your hopes in God's new creation. His kingdom will bring, through, will bring true healing for the nations. His presence will make all things beautiful again, and we will forever be satisfied there. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this vision again of New Jerusalem and the river of life and the tree of life and the access that you've given to people through Jesus. Continue to enrich our lives as we meditate on this vision and hide it in our hearts. Give us hope for future days, knowing that you are the God who makes all things new. And put this message of hope in our mouth that we might announce it to others and encourage one another. In Jesus' name, amen.